Hi, this is Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Enjoy. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Beatles historian David Bedford. David is from Liverpool, England, the birthplace of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And his life has overlapped with the Beatles in several ways. He was born in the Dingle, which I've learned is the same area as Ringo is from. And he attended the same primary school. His three daughters were born in the same hospital as was John, and they attended the same primary school as John and George. And he lives off of Penny Lane. But his relationship with the Beatles is much, much deeper than that. He's a Liverpool Beatles expert. He gives Beatle tours. He's written several books on the Fab Four, and he was the historian on the 2018 documentary, Looking for Lennon. He's going to tell us Liverpool's importance to the band, and he will give us the backstory on several Liverpool-focused songs like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And you know that I feature a song of mine in every episode, in the introduction and then again at the end. And in this episode, my featured song, is actually a cover that I did of a Beatles song. I called it, I Want to Be Your Girl because I have a female singer. And this is on our East Side Sessions album for my band Project Grand Slam. It's basically my reimagined version of a song called I Want to Be Your Man that was sung by Ringo in the movie A Hard Day's Night, one of my favorite films of all time. And by the way, That song, I Want to Be Your Man, is the only Beatles song that was ever recorded by both the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. The Stones actually recorded it first and released it about a month before the Beatles did. And the backstory on that, and I want to check it out with David, is that John Lennon gave the song away because he thought it was basically rubbish and he didn't care about it. So he said, okay, let's let the Stones have that as their first single. So David Bedford, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you so much. What an introduction. How can I live up to that? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to figure it out. All right. So you're coming to us live and in color from Liverpool. Yeah. You grew up in Liverpool. You're born and raised in Liverpool. Yeah, I grew up here um, from the age of four. Uh, I've got no memory of anything else before then. And living in the area, like you said, in the dingle where Ringo's from. But literally, you walk out of my back gate, go 20 yards, and you're at Madrin Street where Ringo was born. So it's not just a general area. I was literally at the bottom of the street where Ringo was born. Wow. So what does the dingle mean? Let's get that out of the way at least. Okay, so historically, there's an area called Toxteth Park, which goes back. Liverpool was officially founded in 1207, so over 800 years ago. And there were the Royal Hunting Grounds with Toxteth Park. Now, this became um, probably what you'd call 
the inner city. So a lot of the workers who were on uh, the docks and on the ships, this is where they live. So working class area. Now within Toxoth Park, nobody ever refers to it as Toxoth, apart from the media. Within Toxoth, there are several little areas, and this one is the Dingle. Now that there are Dingles in various places, um, particularly the one in Ireland, and of course there's a lot of Irish connections with Liverpool, and it's really a, a Dingle is like a little wooded area by a stream that leads oh. to a river, and the, the Dingle from um, where me and Ringo were, you just go down the hill and the dingle leads you to the River Mersey. So we're, we're quite close to the river. So let's talk about the River Mersey and the whole seashore aspect of Liverpool, because one of the things about the Beatles and really all the other groups that were from that area, they got their music from the United States. And as I understand it, it was because of all the ships that would come in back and forth from the States and they bring in records. And that's how the guys finally, or first, I should say, found out about American music. And um, that's, that's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. But the American music is, is the key part to it. But there were actually probably three principal sources. So one, exactly as you say, there were the, the Liverpool merchant seamen, and we called them Cunard Yanks, mainly because they, they're on the Cunard shipping line going from right. Liverpool to New York and back. Um, but it was the White Star Line as well, which uh, John's dad worked on the White Star Line and George's dad had worked on the White Star Line as well. Now, wasn't White Star the Titanic uh, line as well? Yes. Yeah, so the Titanic was actually registered in Liverpool. Um, but I will point out, we did not build it. So blame, <laughs> don't blame us. But yeah, the headquarters is, uh, is actually in Liverpool um, for the Titanic. So yeah, so you had all these Liverpool seamen and you know they were sailing over to New York. They'd be there for two or three days and they'd go and buy suits and they'd go and buy cameras and cigars. But particularly, they went to the record stores and they would bring back. Now, this could be also country and Western because uh, Liverpool had the biggest country and Western scene in Europe during the 60s. Um, there was jazz, which, of course, was really popular in the 40s and 50s, especially. Uh, you had the R&B and then the rock and roll. So all these... Liverpool sailors were coming back to Liverpool. And of course, there was somebody in their family somewhere who was in a band, in a group of some sort. So they dished the records out. So the Liverpool groups, they were hearing these records after months before they were ever officially launched in the UK. So that's, that's your, your first place where they got them. Okay. The second one was Radio Luxembourg, because unlike in America, in the UK until I think sort of mid to late 60s, there was only one national radio broadcaster, which was the BBC. Now, they were never into rock and roll. They had a little uh, skiffle show and they had the light entertainment, but you couldn't hear, you know, pop records. So what they did was you would tune in to Radio Luxembourg. And of course, Luxembourg is this little um, principality in Europe. And before the war, they were beaming in on shortwave uh, music shows during the Second World War, the Nazis took it over and used that for the propaganda. Then they went back and they were doing um, the music shows. So we had some great uh, American DJs like Alan Freed, who coined rock and roll. So he was on Radio Luxembourg, or he yeah. was being broadcast through Radio Luxembourg. 
And exactly. people in Liverpool, were they able to get this signal on just a, a regular radio or a transistor radio? Or did they have to have a short wave or something? You had to have short wave. Um, so, for example, for John Lennon, his uncle George, Mimi's husband, wired an extension speaker all the way from the living room downstairs up to John's bedroom. Because by the time with the time differences you were listening, it was normally late evening going into the night when these shows were on until you got to Sunday evening. So when, say in America, you're watching Ed Sullivan over here, it was like the Jack Jackson show. They were the, they were the, they were the hits and you had all these DJs and they were playing all the latest hits, particularly from America. That's how they were getting access to the songs. Now, the other thing, the other radio station some tuned into was AFN, which was the Armed Forces Network. Now, these were the radio shows being created in America and sent over for the American troops, who, of course, were still in, in Europe after the Second World War. So you could tune in and listen to the, the shows being made for the American servicemen still in Europe. And this is how John came across Elvis for the first time. It's so one of his school friends, Don Beatty. He tuned into AFN. He heard Elvis, went into school and told John to listen. So the radio was crucial to these guys. But then, not just that, during the Second World War, the US took over uh, an RAF uh, airfield just outside Liverpool called Burton Wood. And that's where all the, all the tanks and the planes, which were coming over by ships, were coming into Liverpool. And they got taken either to Liverpool Airport or out to Burton Wood. And I think at its peak, they had about 19 or 20,000 US servicemen on the base. They were assembling the planes. They would then be flown down to the South Coast and, and into the war. Now, in their downtime, and this was going on right through the 60s and into the 70s, the, those US servicemen would come into Liverpool, the nearest town. And because they were segregated on the base, the blacks and the whites came into Liverpool separated. So the white guys went into the city centre, but the black guys went into the black clubs because Liverpool has traditionally had a very large uh, Afro-Caribbean community. And there's like between 15 and 20 different clubs. So you've got the, the black American servicemen going into those clubs with their records, with their American accents, talking music into those clubs went John, Paul and George. So not only were they hearing the records from their friends and relatives bringing them back in, listening to Radio Luxembourg and AFN. But they were actually talking with Americans who were bringing their records into the clubs, listening to them and learning some really obscure songs. Because you had, because there were so many groups here, you had to stand out. So you had to learn something somebody else didn't have. You know, when I, when I asked you the question, I had no idea you were going to give <laughs> such an involved answer. I mean, we were so lucky when I think about it in the United States. You know, in New York City, for example, we had three rock and roll stations on the AM dial and you could just, you know, tune in to any one of them and you'd hear great music. And of course, when the whole British invasion thing began with Ed Sullivan and the Beatles on Sullivan, well, then it became, you know, everywhere. And you just there was no there was no issue to try and find the music, listen to the music, buy the music. But look at all the hoops you had to go through in England. My God. <laughs> yeah, 
Exactly. And then, of course, we had pirate radio. So the next thing then getting into the 60s was, was pirate radio. So they would sail a ship into international waters, see, just outside of British territorial waters. Right. The radio station would be um, built on the ship. The DJs would sit there and they would do their shows from these ships and beam those into the UK, which, of course, was a much clearer signal right? because it was it was only just offshore. That I've heard about. That I've read about. That You had all of these yeah. pirate stations. So what a what a um, an incredible thing that you had going on there. Okay, talk a little bit about Liverpool because you know the Beatles made Liverpool in a sense on an international basis. But I seem to remember you telling me at one point that around the seventies, Liverpool fell into a funk. Is that correct? Yeah. So the Beatles remade Liverpool because when you're getting into particularly into the nineteenth century. Um, during the 18th century, the slave trade was was how people made their money. And Liverpool, Bristol and London, the money was made on the back of the slave trade. Hmm. Um, they, they were sailing the ships from Liverpool down to the west coast of Africa. Slaves would get on there. They'd sail them out to the Caribbean, then to the southern states and exchange them for cotton and tobacco and sugar. That would come back to Liverpool and the merchants here were then selling the, the cotton. So we became... Um, the largest cotton port in the world. You know, by the time the 20th century is coming in, we would do more cotton than anything else. A another aside, that's why Liverpool got very heavily involved in the American Civil War. That's a long story because of the cotton on the Confederate side as well. So the money was getting made through the slave trade and then after that through cotton and all these other things. So Liverpool was a very, very important commercial port. And in the old British Empire, we were second only in status to London because ships were going all over the world. But then, as you're saying, by the time, really, the sad thing was, it was when we got into the 60s, as the Beatles are sort of heading upwards and they're putting Liverpool back on the map, actually the city was starting to suffer because from going from having like 30,000 men just working on the docks, handling cargo, containers started coming in. And so by the time you get to the 70s, you only need a fraction of the workforce to be on the big cranes to move these containers around. So today, there's probably less than 5,000 people on the docks, but dealing with way more tonnage than we've ever done before. So Liverpool was in decline. And because we were a port, the shipbuilding had stopped, all the containers and the goods coming in. And then one of the worst things in a way that happened was we joined the European Union. By joining the EU, trade with Europe became more important. Liverpool's on the wrong side of the country. Right. So any trade that's coming in from, from the States then, well, it's easy just bypass Ireland, go around the South and go to Southampton. And we were, we were cut off. During the, the 60s, the Beatles, as we said, kind of put Liverpool on the map in a social sense okay yeah everybody yeah. from the states everybody around the world all of a sudden discovered liverpool yeah and all the great bands that came out of liverpool some with brian epstein some i'm sure not connected with him and i would just think that at that point liverpool was ascending okay because yeah you know you would have thought that it, it would have started a trade around the Beatles, around the groups, around the music, with the cavern and all of that. 
But what I think you told me is that, as you said, it went into decline in the 70s. Now, why was that? Well, you have to realize that the Beatles left Liverpool in the summer of 1963. They had to move to London because the, the record companies were down there. The media was down there, television, radio, everything was in London. They had to be in there. So really, past the summer of 63, the Beatles only came back a few times. Big reception in, in July 64 for a hard day's night. The last appearance was December 65. So the Beatles and Liverpool, really that bit was finished. So Liverpool was being talked about because that's where they're from. But what was happening around them was all in London. Nice. That's where the money was. And there wasn't a tourist, a Beatles tourist industry at that time then, huh? Beatles tourism didn't start until the early to mid-1980s. What a mistake. Okay. <laughs> you wasted right. 20 years, and they were the yeah. biggest uh, export from England that you had at the time. Yeah. And yet everything was centered around uh, London. Then, of course, they, they break up in 1970 go off and start doing their solo projects. And Liverpool had so many economic problems going on. Talking about a band who left the city in 63, who were no longer together. Well, there was no great need to do anything to build it. And really, tourism only properly took off, sadly, after John was murdered. Mm. Because then fans felt this need to come to Liverpool to see where John was born, where he grew up, where he lived, where the cavern was. And really, it was on the back of that, that tourism really starts in the, in the 80s. And then only, that's not through local government's help. No, the guys who were starting that off, you know, and I particularly think of uh, Bill Heckle, Dave Jones uh, at Cavern City Tours, they were doing that, putting their money where the mouth was, in spite of local government, because they felt they had to do this. And they went and they... They did their thing, and the rest of the industry grew around that. And now it's a huge industry in Liverpool, isn't it? The whole Beatles tour and Beatles-centric industry. Oh, it's, it's massive. It's worth something getting on for £100 million a year, linked to over 2,000 jobs. Amazing. So it, it's a big, big thing. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. You know, you probably know this, but uh, there was a very famous incident not too long ago where Paul McCartney came back to Liverpool as part of the James Corden show. And we saw that in the United States, and it was just a wonderful vignette that they showed on television and, you know, the uh, the video. How did it go over in England? Oh, everybody has been talking about it as soon as it was on. Because, of course, it was a big thing in Liverpool. Um, Somebody had sent me a message the night before. He said, make sure you're around. Something big's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but I know something's happening. And then, of course, then Paul turns up with, with James Corden, and I'm getting messages from all over the world. <laughs> Are you there? What are you doing? And I wasn't here. I was in Dublin. So I was not actually in the city. Oh, and, and this it, is huh? the, sad, <laughs> the sad irony was I was in Dublin about to get onto a cruise ship 
that would sail into Liverpool the next morning. And I was giving a talk about the Beatles in Liverpool while there was a Beatle in Liverpool. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, how unlucky can you get? Oh, dear. One of the funniest parts, not funniest, the, the, the <laughs> warmest parts of the whole thing, you know, McCartney is, is on the block where he, where he grew up, right? In, in that little row house of his. I mean, yeah. you know the address. I don't know the address. But it's almost like he knocks on the door. Hi, I'm here. I'd like to come in and kind of see where I grew up and show you the room where John and I, you know, played guitar together and wrote about, you know, a hundred songs that have become world famous. It was just so endearing to see that. Well, it was, you know, he moved in there, uh, 24th in Road, when he was 13. The sadness, of course, for him was 12 months after moving in is when his mother his Mary mother died from uh, cancer. So he had a lot of memories from there, but yeah, that's where he wrote his first song. Um, and it's, it's been interesting listening to him recently with his new book, telling all the, the stories behind the, the songs. And in the interviews and him realizing that his first song, I Lost My Little Girl. Well, I woke up late this morning, my head was Subliminally, he realized later on. Mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we'd always assume that, but, you know, he, he'd realized that as well. And of course, let it be, Mother Mary comes to me. Absolutely. So she was a big figure in his life, as was his dad. You know, and he always talked so warmly about his dad as well. You know, Jim was a really good musician. He'd had, uh, he played in bands. He had his own band, Jim Max Band, and they, they played jazz. So a lot of the family, played instruments there was always sing-alongs in the house um and that's where paul got his real love of all types of music you know that's how he can can write something like when i'm 64 when i get older losing my head many years from now will you still be sending me a valentine birthday greetings bottle of wine if i'd been out till quarter to three would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? That musical variety style is what he grew up listening to. So all that was there. And he'd been back to Liverpool a number of times. And at least three occasions, he'd gone to 24th in Road and knocked on the door. And there was nobody there. So that's the first time he'd been back inside in decades. Uh, you know, you see that little room inside of that um, house where, again, he and John Lennon, you know, would sit. I guess they were about 16 years old and they were, you know, composing their first songs. And, you know, it's always been remarkable to me. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that Paul ever had any formal music training. Uh, well. He had about two, maybe three piano lessons. That's it. So, yeah. no, there's no fun. He went up the road to somebody who could play, and he got bored very, very quickly, gave up on that, and it's all instinctive. Um, it's all learned by ear. Yeah. I mean, you can't teach genius, and he has genius, okay? Oh, absolutely right. That's it. And sometimes I've had this conversation with, with musicians, and... Um, 
I followed the same path. I had a few piano lessons, got bored very, very quickly, never learned to read or write music, but will happily sit and play a guitar, a bass guitar, a piano, and play by chords and play by ear because I can't read music. But I, I had a conversation with a um, lady who was the pianist in our church, classically trained, was a music teacher. And I'd done this, like, this boogie-woogie version of Amazing Grace. Right, I used to play this and said, I wish I could be free enough to play that, but I can't because the way I'm trained, I couldn't be that relaxed to play. Whereas I look at her and think, I wish I'd learned to read music and I never did. So somewhere in between, and, you know, it's not done Paul any harm. He's done okay, hasn't he? No, no, no. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, on a recent podcast episode, a very, very wonderful musician was saying to me, it's almost uh, uh, like the story of Mozart and Salieri. Okay. Salieri was the court composer. Mozart was this, you know, this brat. Okay. Yeah. But, but Mozart had genius. Absolutely. Salieri didn't have it. And here we are, you know, hundreds of years later, still humming and singing Mozart's melodies, just like we will a hundred years from now be singing McCartney's melodies. Absolutely right. And, and that's it. And there's something about music. And it's strange, you know, when you play the Beatles songs, and they were the first songs really that I learned on guitar um, all those years ago, I've still got my first Beatles songbook, The Beatles Complete. You know, and it's full of wrong lyrics, wrong chords. You know, it's scribbled all over, but I've still got it. You know, it's like 40-something years old. But you can play those songs, and I've got a five-year-old grandson, and he loves Yellow Submarine, uh, Hey Jude, right. all together now. And he's just, because he watched a uh, film, uh, Boss Baby has Blackbird singing at the end of it. <laughs> so he's walking around singing the lyrics to Blackbird singing. You got a very hip grandson there, okay? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, he's cool. Don't you worry. No way he was not going to be. But but he loves that. And the songs, you think, well, yeah, it's an easy melody to pick up. Oh, that's quite simple. You try and write that. Yeah. No, that's what that's what the genius is yes. within you know with John and Paul, and then what what George developed as well yep. is writing a brilliant melody and a brilliant song and making it easy to pick up you know some people have written about in a sense the bad luck that george had that he was the third wheel okay yeah. with two of the greatest songwriters in the history of the world okay in any other band he <laughs> would have been at the top of mount everest although he did very well of course yes i want to go to a couple of the songs that mm. are liverpool related songs because you have a fascinating ability to tell the backstory on these songs let's start with penny lane okay penny lane there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know and all the people that come and go stop and say hello Him behind his back, and the banker never wears a mac in the pouring rain. Very strange, Penny Lane. 
about Penny Lane. It, it's one of those songs which, unless you know this area of Liverpool, it will never make sense. By the, the time they're writing this song, you know, we're in 1966, they're finishing touring, and they were getting more and more clever with their lyrics. And they were trying to write songs that maybe nobody, you know, could write in the times and analyse other alien cadences and stuff, which, which Paul always mentions. And so they started to craft songs which they understood and not everybody else would. And Penny Lane comes across as, it's a nice, whimsical song about a place with a few shops. And that misses the point completely. So when Paul was with James Corden and they drive up Penny Lane, and obviously they talk about the song but the song of Penny Lane isn't actually on Penny Lane, but it's sort of, it is as well. Because Penny Lane, the road ends at a roundabout called Smithdown Place. Now, I know McCartney's a genius, but Smithdown Place is in my ears and in my eyes, does not work. Okay? <laughs> right. Now, before, before they wrote the song, local people have always called that the Penny Lane roundabout. And that's because in the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, was the bus shelter and before that the tram shelter and because the destination on the front of your bus was penny lane and you paid your fare to penny lane local people called it the penny lane roundabout so on that roundabout you've got the barber shop you've got the bank and you've got the shelter in the middle of the roundabout so there's two penny lanes but there's a third penny lane as well just to confuse you even further because at this roundabout, you've got three different Liverpool suburbs all meet at this one place. Wavertree, where George was born. Mossley Hill, where Penny Lane the road is. And Allerton, just up the other way. They all come there. So the easiest thing is, because the whole area goes around this roundabout, it's known as the Penny Lane area. Now, this becomes then important in under, understanding the song. Because in the Penny Lane area, just off the roundabout, is Newcastle Road. That's the road where John first lived with his mum after he was born. So John spent most of his first five years in Penny Lane. Then when he moved to live with his aunt Mimi up in Walton, he was getting the bus every day to the Penny Lane roundabout, walking down Penny Lane, going to Dovedale School, going back to the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, getting on the bus and going home. So until John was 11, he's spending most of his time in and around Penny Lane. So it's quite personal to him. George is the same, born up the road. So when he was going to Dovedale, he would walk down, go through the Penny Lane roundabout, down Penny Lane, go to Dovedale School. Then when he was seven, his family moved to the south of Liverpool to speak. So he was getting the bus to Penny Lane every day. So until George is 11, he's going to Penny Lane most of the time. 
Paul is then getting the bus to the Liverpool Institute from the age of 11, which takes you through Penny Lane and back every day. When John was going to the art college from Mimi's, that would take you through Penny Lane and back every day. Paul and George met on the bus. John, Paul and George got the haircut at the barbershop on Penny Lane. When they were the quarrymen, it would be the place to meet up because they travelled everywhere by bus. They would go to the chip shop down on Penny Lane. They go to the cinema up the road off Penny Lane. So when it comes down to it, what they're saying is in their ears and in their eyes. For John, Paul and George, their childhood and formative years are all based around Penny Lane. It is a very important personal song to them. And nobody ever got it. And it's only when I moved into the area and I started digging into it, I realized the significance. So I've been here for over 30 years now. And virtually every day, driving anywhere, I'm either driving down Penny Lane or I'm going through the roundabout, because you have to. Now, the interesting thing is McCartney wrote that song. And maybe you know the answer, because I don't. Was this one of the songs where John Lennon really contributed to the song? Did he add any of the lyrics to the song? Or was this strictly a Paul memory of that era that you're describing? Um, it's always been described as a Paul song, but I was able to prove that John made a significant contribution to it, which I've then, when you start digging into research, Paul says John came and helped with the, with the fourth verse, which is true because that, that, the whole verse about the shelter in the middle of the roundabout has got nothing to do with Paul McCartney. We always assumed there was a pretty nurse there. Paul's mum was a nurse, therefore that's why he was a nurse in the song. No, it's got nothing to do with Paul. This is all a John Lennon memory. So the nurse, her name was Beth Davidson, so I found out who she was. She was, at the time, age about 14, a nurse cadet. She was selling a poppies for Remembrance Day. Um, so that's we know it's this sort of time of year, end of October going into November for Remembrance Day. The guy I interviewed, Stan Williams, was a childhood friend of Beth. He was standing next to her when along comes John Lennon and his best mate, Pete Shotton, and they stop and they talk. And the reason why John's put that story in is because Beth, the pretty nurse, was Pete Shotton's girlfriend and became Pete's wife. Now, John and Pete stayed best friends. So John put his best friend's wife in a Beatles song, and nobody knew. <laughs> Beth was the pretty nurse. And you know, the last two lines, she feels as if she's in a place she is anyway. Right. If anybody knew Beth from a very young age, she loved to act. So they used to put on plays for the parents, but she did this going into her teens, you know, in a school, a church, a youth club, etc. She was always acting. So she felt as if she was in a play, but of course, now she is anyway, because she's been immortalized as the pretty nurse of Penny Lane. <laughs> The only problem is she never gets any royalties from this. <laughs> no, no, no. And you were the only one that knows the story. Well, now at least we got several thousand additional people that will know the story. You know what this reminds me of a little bit when in the in the 60s, you know, there was that very infamous Paul is dead period oh, yeah. where everybody thought that he had died and everyone was looking on the records for all the various hidden symbols yeah. and words and all of that. But, you know, you've dug even deeper than all of the stuff that we learned back then. I love the story. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what, and that's what I love to do. I love to look at something and say, why? And I always question why. Tell me about the banker in this, in the song too. 
Right. So, so we know the barbershop. So John Paul and George got the haircut there and the barbershop is still there because Paul went in on the James Corden. Did they get the beetle uh, cuts there? That's what everyone wants to know. No, no, <laughs> no. This is when they were kids. Um, but the banker. So there, there were three banks on that roundabout uh, back in the 50s. The reason they were writing about a banker with a motor car was because back then, very few people could afford a car. So most people who were at Penny Lane were either getting a bus or maybe going shopping. So imagine you're Paul McCartney and it's cold and it's raining as it normally is. We do rain very well over here, which is why George wrote, here comes the sun. We hope. Um, So imagine you're Paul and you're waiting for your bus in the rain. The person you hate is the bank manager. I mean, people hate bank managers anyway, but this is a different reason because he walked out of his bank. He doesn't wear his Mac in the pouring rain, his raincoat. He doesn't need to because his car is parked outside the bank. He walks out, opens his car, puts his coat in, drives home. So that's why in the song, the children used to laugh at him behind his back. They were jealous of him. Everybody knew the bank manager and he had the car, which nobody else could afford. And they were jealous. Just great. Just great. We're going to have to give a little test to everybody after this because (laughs) you filled in all of the detail. I love it. All right. I want to go to one more song that's a Liverpool song, which is Strawberry Fields. Let me take you. Let me 
about Strawberry fields forever Strawberry fields forever Strawberry fields forever Tell us the backstory of Strawberry Fields. So this is all John. This is a John song that he started writing when he was out in uh, Almeria in Spain, filming How I Won the War. So we're getting towards the end of 66. They've stopped touring, so they've got lots of spare time. Obviously, when you're making a film, there's lots and lots of spare time. So he's playing around. You know, he's got his guitar. And the way I think of it is... John was going back to his happy place because by 66, um, you know, he'd, he'd written help and help, as he had said later on, that was his cry for help. You know, he was yeah. numb. He could not feel anything. He'd been through so many traumas. So he was looking back to his childhood. So where Mendips is, the house where John lived from the age of five with Mimi and George, if you go just behind there into Vale Road. His three closest childhood friends lived there. It's uh, Ivan Vaughan, Nigel Wally, Pete Shotton. In that road, there's a big sandstone wall, which is still there now. The other side of that wall was the Salvation Army, a children's home called Strawberry Field. Now, the Salvation Army had taken it over in 1936, and they had this huge mansion built on the hill. It was built in... Uh, the late 19th century by uh, George Warren, one of these shipping merchants. So from the back of John's house, he was looking up to what looks like, you know, either the Bates Motel or a, a Gothic castle <laughs> standing on top of the hill with John's imagination. Of course, he was imagining all kinds of spooky things going on. So here's a simple thing written into every lad's DNA. So you've got private property, you've got a big wall, and you've got a group of, of lads. What does your DNA tell you you have to do? You've got to climb over the wall, haven't you? That's what they used to do. So the four of them would climb that wall at the back of Strawberry Field and they'd go and play in the grounds. Now, one of the things that always appealed to me with trying to understand John was he loved Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass, which is all about uh, going from one reality into another one. So for John, when they were on the right side of the wall, everything was real. When he climbed over that wall, that was his imaginary playground. That was like Alice going down the rabbit hole. Nothing That's where real. nothing was real. That's where his imagination could run wild. And he'd be there with his friends. And of course, at that time, when he saw 13, 14, his uncle George, his father figure was still alive. His mother was still alive. There was no Beatles. There was no pressure. There was no mania. He was truly happy and content. And I think what he was, when he was getting into writing the song, he was thinking that you know, nobody understands me. Nobody's on my wavelength. Uh, it must be high or low. No one I think is in my tree. It started as no one I think is on my wavelength. Nobody could understand him. And he was going back to this wonderful, mystical place in his memory, where he spent so much time, was playing in these grounds uh, at Strawberry Field. And it became such an important place for him. And I think mentally, that's where he wanted to be because none of the madness uh, had happened and he, and he was content. 
So he was writing about this amazing place nearby where he lived, where he grew up, where he was with his friends. You know, everything was good. And he was just, he was content then and thinking, you know, what happened? You know, after that, Uncle George dies when he's 14. His mum gets knocked down and killed when he's 17. Stuart Sutcliffe drops dead in 1962. And he had this almost like fatalist feeling. People who come close to me die. And he'd, he'd had that conversation with Paul. He was scared of people getting close to him because they all seemed to die. And it just consumed everything. So when he's thinking, I'm free of touring, I can do something on my own. But I really loved that time. And in the house where he was in Almeria was a big house on top of a hill, a bit like Strawberry Field. There was a big wall. And the other side of the wall, he could hear children playing. That's what took him back to the, the big wall where he could hear children playing in Strawberry Field. And so his mind was going there and going to a place where nothing was real because that's sort of where he wanted to be. I'll tell you, I think you've got this all sussed out and it makes so much sense given all the other things that we know and in particular you know about the Beatles. David, this has been just a fascinating experience to hear you talk about the city and about the, the, the guys and about the locations and the songs. Just fantastic. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And now um, we're going to listen again to the song that started out uh, being played underneath the introduction. It's my homage, if you will, to the Beatles, my reimagined version of I Want to Be Your Man called I want to be your girl. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.